Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. Um, It's been a little while since the last podcast. I apologize about that. But we have an insane amount of racing to cover. We have uh, the Giro Stage 16 was today. The Volta España Stage 1 was today. The Tour of Flanders, I'd say the biggest and best one-day race was on Sunday. I mean, it's it's just like, it's overwhelming, but... We'll try to parse through what is going on. Uh, so I, I am watching the pro cycling, so you guys don't have to. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, and if you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Uh Thank you for everyone who's done that so far. And there's also a newsletter. There's a free weekly newsletter and a premium daily option. Uh, if you like this podcast, you'll love the newsletter. It is at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. If you're currently subscribing and not finding it in your inbox, make sure you check your promotions folder. I, it's been my inbox is super aggressive about putting stuff in there. So uh, just take a look at that if you think you should be getting it but haven't. But uh, just for the racing today, we had Slovenian dom- more Slovenian domination. Jan Trunkic won the uh, stage 16 of the Giro d'Italia out of a breakaway. And Primoz Roglic just picked up where he left off, winning the first stage of the Volta España after winning Liège-Bastogne-Liège and coming in second at the Tour de France. Uh, the Volta, I, I just finished watching that. Let's just talk about Volta Stage 1 because I just finished watching it. It was like an exciting version of the Tour de France. It was awesome. I mean, we have Richard Carapaz, who's actually in, uh, like in, in shape this time because his team didn't tell him he had to go at the last second. Tom Dumoulin, Primoz Roglic. I mean, let's just look at the top 10. We had Primoz Roglic winning, Richard Carapaz in second, Dan Martin in third, Esteban Chavez in fourth, Felix, Felix Grubcharter. Actually, shout out to uh, Tim Hayes, host of the Slow Ride podcast. He picked him for his fantasy team last night. That's going to be a great pickup. Enrique Maas. So they all finished uh, two through seven six finished one second behind Roglic who got a small gap at the finish plus bonus seconds for winning the stage and Hugh Carthy came in four seconds down Sepkus was behind him George Bennett I mean this is it's just like a repeat of the tour it's awesome but it's much more exciting and then we had Alejandro Valverde and Tom Dumoulin in a group about a minute back so they're already not looking that good but it was it was incredibly exciting racing it was so aggressive it was like everything the tour isn't where we saw some hard stages at the beginning of the Tour de France but there's just this weird effect at that race where it's such a big race that people ride so conservatively and you don't it never quite pops off in the first week like you think it should even if the parkours are difficult but the Volta, it was like we were just dropped into the third week of a Grand Tour. I couldn't believe it was stage one. The racing was so hard from the gun. It was in the Basque Country in the north of Spain, and the, it's always raining there. So the weather was tough. The terrain is really tough. It's just very mountainous region. It, it looked brutal, and it was just these... Uh, Ineos was setting the pace uh, for the final two climbs, and they actually dropped Chris Froome on the penultimate pen climb. Uh, kind of showing where their priorities are for this race. They're backing Carapaz, which makes total sense. I mean, Carapaz really did them a favor by going to the Tour. He would, I'm convinced he would be winning the Giro right now if he would have gone, as he was planning to. 
So they really owe him, uh, and it showed. They were driving the pace hard, dropped Froome. Froome finished uh, like like 12 minutes back. I mean, he's not going to be... I, I think they brought him here just for publicity reasons because it would have been uh, too embarrassing for Froome and too, too much of a hot-button issue just not to race him for the rest of the year. But he's clearly not even going to be able to contribute uh, to teamwork at this point. And it was not a great look for the team that they were like dropping him actively dropping him on the second to last climb just just dead weight back there uh it's 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 really weird to see but something i've talked about in previous podcasts is Froome not only has to get back to his old level he has to surpass that level to be competitive these top riders now are faster than he was when he was at his best so it just it doesn't make sense it never made sense that he would be competing for the win here because he needs to get better than he was at like 28 years old which is not going to happen at his age you know he's 35 i believe it's just it's not going to it's not going to work so uh not surprised it was weird to see shocking to see not surprising i couldn't believe how tough it was it was you would not believe it was the first day of a grand tour uh, and then we had on the on this they they drove the pace off the descent, uh, started the final climb at the front, and it looked like I really thought Carapace was going to wipe everybody on that final climb. But Roglic, it's it was just like we just picked up. It was like a group of friends that we just like fell back into. It's like oh Dumoulin there, there Roglic is there. Valverde is getting dropped. Everything's normal. Uh, I'd say the big differences are where Dan Martin looked. Uh, he broke his back before the Tour de France, and I don't know. I doubt he has that resolved. That seems like a big problem. I think it's actually the second time he's broken his back, which seems like a huge health issue. But he was, you know, he was really fit. Carapaz was fitter than he was at the Tour, and Roglic just looked fantastic. He looked, uh, yeah, I guess he looked similar to his first week form at the Tour de France. Uh, he won the stage, got the time bonus, got a small gap. I'm sure some people will be criticizing him, saying he should have attacked earlier. This is how he lost the tour. He didn't attack enough. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think any of those guys could have dropped each other on that final climb. It wasn't particularly difficult. It was just ridden so hard that you know it put a lot of people in trouble. Uh, perfect. I think it's a perfect start to the race for. For Roglic, uh, his Yumbo team is strong per usual. It'll be interesting to see how differently they ride this Vuelta after potentially seeing mistakes, the error of their ways at the Tour de France, where they just like kind of conservatively controlled the race for 2.8 weeks and then lost it on the second to last day, maybe because they didn't weren't quite aggressive enough. So I think, I mean... Something about the about the Vuelta, it's it's always the most aggressive Grand Tour. It is so aggressive. I don't know if it's because it's the last one of the season, but uh, yeah, or maybe it's just a. It's probably a, a combination of like it's not the strongest teams. The terrain in Spain is very punchy. They they purposely pick really really punchy, tough, uh, but not too long climbs. They count, I, th- I only count two sprint stages in the whole race. It's actually only 18 stages. They had to cut out, I believe they had a foreign start planned, and they had to cut that out, and they didn't make the stages up. They just cut four stages off. So that will be, wait, stage 19, 20, 21. They cut three stages off. So that will actually help Roglic, who tends to lose or struggle in Grand Tours in the last three or four stages. So great for him. 
But yeah, so uh, yeah, and it's the last Grand Tour of the year, so maybe riders are a little bit more desperate for results. Um, I don't know. For whatever reason, it is always so aggressive. I've you remember last year, stage one was a team time trial, so we saw gaps there. But then stage two was it wasn't even as hard as this. Uh, it was it was uh, I believe on the Costa. It wasn't on the Costa Brava. It was on the Costa Azur, maybe. But it was it was it was easier. It had some short steep climbs, and like Teo Gegenhart lost like ten minutes, and uh, actually Nairo Quintana won the stage uh, with uh, he attacked on the flat after it was a steep climb descent, and then like a flat run in, kind of a maybe a slight descent into the finish, and Nairo Quintana won, and we saw some some significant GC gaps. So it was actually a similar start to today. But it is, it's, it's like the, the most fun Grand Tour. Uh, I feel like find the Tour slightly boring, a little, it almost caves in on itself. It's such a big event that everyone's so tight. The top tens are worth so much that people don't really take risks. And then the Vuelta is just so wild. It's, there's always so much happening, so much attacking. It's, the Giro is my favorite Grand Tour, but I'd say the Vuelta is the most exciting Grand Tour. Uh, and then, yeah, so, so to go back to this year, I, I feel like this Euro, I'm like a protective parent of this thing. It was, it's the start list of the vault is much, 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 much stronger. I mean, it's like world-class, uh, world-class Grand Tour riders. The Giro is, it's, I'd say it's an aficionado's race this year. Uh, we're seeing some young riders like Joao Almeida, uh, not so young riders like Wilco Kelderman, but he's kind of been there his whole career, but never really had a result. Uh, I'd say he's in the pole position to win this thing. Uh, Jai Hindley, who's kind of, I'd say, a young, unproven rider from Australia. Most of his results so far have been in Australian and Asian races, which I maybe I don't give enough credit to. I kind of looked at his result sheet and thought, oh, he's like a winner rider because all those races are in the Northern Hemisphere winter, Southern Hemisphere summer. There's a lot of riders who, like Patrick McCarthy, I believe that was his name. He was on Bora. He always did well at like the Harold Sun Tour, the Tour Down Under, some Asian races, and then they just never they can. I feel like they're they're pipping results when the European pros are in their winter and out of shape, and they're just training a lot in the Australian summer, and that's how they generate results. Uh, but I clearly misjudged how that I thought J- Jai Henley was just doing that, but he is a legitimate, uh, like a legitimate world class Grand Tour racer. Uh, the climb he did on stage 15 up Piancavola was, uh, I saw it like estimated at like 6.3, 6.4 watts per kilo. It's a little bit more of a shallow climb. So uh, Kelderman, Teo Gegenhardt were on his wheel. And so theirs would have been quite a bit lower. I'd even say close to six watts per kilo. You can get quite a big draft on uh, easier climb, not easier, but just less steep climbs like that when the speed is high. Kind of an interesting thing about that is Zhao got dropped 7K from the finish and rode like he was just dangling like 30, 40 seconds off the back of that lead group of three the whole time. I I saw his power estimated at 6.1 watts per kilo. I bet he was doing the same, if not slightly more than Kelderman and Teo Gegenhart, who were drafting that whole climb. So it's kind of that that was interesting to me because it's obviously not good he got dropped, uh, but he got dropped a long ways out, 7K from the finish. If he wasn't strong, you know, he would have lost three or four minutes on that stage. 
The fact that he could uh, limit his losses to 37 seconds by the end of the stage, uh, stayed in pink, and then probably rode harder than Kelderman and Gegenhart tells me that he, I, I see it just like he's being totally written off. Like, oh, when we get to the hard climbs, he's, he's going to lose the race. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, if he doesn't get distanced when Jai Henley attacked with 7K to go, probably knowing that was his last chance to drop Almeida, uh, I think he stays in that group. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't write him off so quickly. He's still in the, in the jersey. He, was in, he saved it by 15 seconds, but he got two seconds back today. It was, kind of, it was just like a classic breakaway day in the Friuli region, the Friuli province, a beautiful part of Italy, kind of a forgotten forgotten region but it's next to slovenia which is uh fitting because we had a slovenian winner and jan trankic that's <laughs> two I, there's never been two grand tours running at the same time so this is i'm going to officially say the first time two riders from the same country have won concurrent stages in grand tours on the same day uh but let's look yeah he got two seconds so he's now 17 seconds in front of wilco kelderman Two, I mean, yeah, he's two minutes and 58 seconds in front of Jai Hindley. Three minutes in front of Teo Gegenhardt. I'm seeing it just like, people are basically just like giving the race to Gegenhardt at this point. I've seen so much written where it's just like, I, people assuming that Wilco Ketterman's going to fall apart, lose two minutes and 45 seconds to get Teo Gegenhardt, while his teammate Jai Hindley also falls apart. I'm not, A, I'm not so sure that Almeida is going to lose this. Because if we remember, there's a time trial on stage 21 in Milan. And Almeida is the best time trialist in this race out of the GC riders. So they, they need like to catch him and then probably an additional 30 seconds to really hold him off. But at the end of the stage today, it was a steep, it was a pretty steep kick up to the line. Like maybe three or 400 meter long climb. And he just dropped everybody. He rode him off his wheel. So that tells me that a, that's a that's like an, a statement that like I'm still here. You're not going to get rid of me that easily. And two, just the physical ability to do that this late in the race in the third week of a Grand Tour tells me he's not done yet. So I he's been completely written off by the the mainstream media. I feel like a like a conspiracy theorist saying that, but. I wouldn't write him off just yet. And then Kelderman, I've talked a lot of crap on Kelderman. I compared him to the gum stuck on the sole of your shoe, just his riding style. It's so uninspired to me. It's just kind of always there. Never really does anything. I don't know. That totally, it really bothers me. But he's he's looking great. I'd say he's he's the favorite to win. If we look at the betting markets, if we look at BetMGM right now, I think he's like a negative like a minus 175 to win, which would be, you'd have to bet $175 to win 100 back. Also seen it said that it's unfair to say that he falls apart in the third week of Grand Tours because he only loses time because he crashes in flats. To me, that's part of the race. If you're really fit, you tend to ride on the parts of the road where you're least likely to get flats. You know, there's a direct correlation between, it's not just, flats are not just bad luck. You know, there's like a race savvy and a fitness. You know, when you're not fit, you're, you don't have control of where you're riding. You're just hanging on for dear life. And you kind of go wherever the group takes you. And you can get put 
put in parts of the road, rougher parts of the road where you're more likely to get a flat. So it's not, it's, you can't just say, oh, he's, he's getting flats. That's bad luck. That's why he's never won. It's a, there's a direct line between fitness, um, riding ability skill, which is part of the race and not flatting. So, uh, yeah, it's not fair to say he isn't wrapped up by any means. Uh, and, but then, so for, let's just play this out for Teo Gegenhart, for him to win this tour, a, I really didn't like on stage 15. He looked to be the strongest rider in that group. And if he was serious about the GC, he would have attacked him 2k out or at least 1k from the line, but just to ride to the line and then out sprint Kelderman and Henley for the win and then sit up to celebrate before he crossed the line tells me he's not super dialed in on that goal. You know, that's not, he's missed the podium now. He's off the podium by a second. He could have been in third place if he would have ridden through the line. Um, I don't think that time is really, he's not going to lose the Giro by a second probably. But, you know, that like uh, last year, Primoz Roglic got on the podium by a second, a few seconds. Uh, if we go back to the 2017 Tour de France, I believe Mikel Landa missed the podium by a second. You know, so it can have podium implications. And also, it just tells me he's not dialed in. You know, a real GC killer wouldn't do that. For example, Richard Carapaz would would never do that. He'd he'd always be thinking, where can I take time? Where can I take time? But I I didn't like that from Gegenhart. It kind of showed me that why he's not a proven GC rider. He's young, but I think he's 25. Yeah, he's 25 years old. Like... This is, if he was going to be a GC rider, he needs to be showing himself around this age. So, uh, yeah, let, okay, but let's just play it out. Let's say he wins the, wins the Giro. So he's going to have to drop Kelderman by a lot. He's going to have to drop Joao Almeida first. And then he's going to have to drop, drop Kelderman. And here's the big, I mean, he's going to have to put a lot of time into Kelderman. Let's just say he can do that. I don't think he can, but let's say he can. Jai Henley, I mean, that's a problem. Jai Henley on that stage 15 climb to Pankivola was f- so strong. Like, he looked like he was sprinting up the mountain. And he pulled the whole time and didn't lose that much time at the end. He still had a lot left in that final K, more than I expected. So he would have to drop Jai Henley. Uh, and also, Jai Henley is the better time trialist. So he has to drop Jai Henley. Well, I don't know if that's fair to say. Let's say they're equally bad time trialists. Let's just say they're even. So uh, I, th- I think what would have to happen is this could get tricky if Gegenhart has a great day in the high mountains. Almeida's dropped. Kelderman and Henley are alone with Gegenhart. Gegenhart attacks. Kelderman can't respond. Henley has to make a split-second decision there. Do I go with Gegenhart or do I stay with my like, team leader, quote-unquote team leader? I think, that, and then let's say he hesitates and stay with Kel, stays with Kelderman. That's how Gigginhart wins. So it's not impossible, but I, I think it's because he's British. Uh, I guess maybe this theory doesn't hold out because Henley speaks English. But there, there's a huge bias in Anglophone cycling media towards Anglophone riders, specifically British ones. I mean, if you did like a, should do this sometime, maybe crawl a couple websites and build, Word, word clouds, it would be like Cavendish is so overrepresented. Richie Port, actually like him now, but he's also so overrepresented. And we don't hear enough about riders like 
Jao Almeida, Wilco Kelderman, Pelo Bilbao, who's only a few seconds behind Gegenhardt. So if Gegenhardt's going to win, why is Bilbao getting no, no talk? I don't think Bilbao can win because he's got a Tour de France in his legs, which is insane. Rafa Micah's not far back from Teo Gegenhardt. Vincenzo Nibali's not that far back from Teo Gegenhardt. He hasn't looked good. He's actually looked awful. But the thing about Nibali, he's in seventh at 331 back. He does not care about any place that's not first. And that's pretty rare. A lot of guys will like, oh, I'll, I'll ride for top five. I'll ride for top three. So he'll, he'll try to blow this race up at some point. Um, and we got news today. This is significant. The, the GC rode that, that stage today really, really slow, just like taking it easy, which uh, yesterday I thought that there's mountain stages on stage 17, which is tomorrow stage 18 which is thursday stage 20 on saturday these are these are high mountain stages it was uh forecasted to snow on on all of them so i thought they would all be shortened or called off or turned into less difficult stages which would have helped almeida significantly and i thought they were going to have to get rid of him on stages like today but they rode today really slow so i thought well what's going on here i I rechecked the forecast Tomorrow we finish at Madonna, Madonna di Campin, Campinolo, something like that. Uh, it's like a super, really classic climb in the Dolomites. Marco Pantani dropped Pavel Tonkov there to win the 1998 Giro d'Italia. I believe that's right. Uh, and then stage 18 is over the Stelvio, and, which is really, it's a really hard. And then it finishes on another climb. But it's a, it's, I'd say that's the hardest climb in the race. Probably the hardest climb in the Dolomites. It was supposed to snow on both of those stages. And then Saturday goes over the Agnello Pass, which is either the highest or the second highest pass in the race behind the Stelvio. And then finishes at Sestriere. You'll remember that from Lance Armstrong's 1999 uh, mountain stage win. That was like when he announced himself as a GC rider. Uh, that was also supposed to snow there. So I thought all three of those stages were going to be canceled or shortened. But I rechecked the... I'll put pictures of... I have like pictures of the roadsides and summits. I can put them in the newsletter. But all three of those days are supposed to be cold but dry. That That's key. They'll race them. The riders will complain, but they'll race them if it's, if it's dry. It's going to be cold at the top, like below freezing, which makes it really hard. But if it's not precipitating... Uh, they're going to race them. They, they can't. They, they could force, the riders could force the race organizers to cancel them if it's raining. It just wouldn't be safe. It would be so cold. Uh, the health of the riders would be in question. And then I'd say most importantly, like they just literally wouldn't be able to control their bikes and they could like ride off the side of a mountain, which would be bad. Those climbs are going to be raced. And at least as things stand currently, it's going to get tricky though with the cold. I think that's going to have an effect on on how how riders do it's funny because the tour i'm always like nothing ever changes after like literally nothing happens in the third week of the tour like the stats bear that out this year it's the total opposite like you really can't predict this thing until it's over a lot changes uh i think just because of the weather is more normally it's in may which is you know it's also dicey weather in the mountains uh and just the the Italian mountains are so freaking hard. It's it's not France. France they're more graded out. It's not easy, but 
they're more manageable, more predictable climbs. It's almost like racing in a laboratory. You can you can predict who and how people are going to gain time, but in the Dolomites, uh, all bets are off. Anything could happen on these stages. So it's it's really hard to predict. But so Nibali's going to Nibali's going to throw down a big attack early, far out in one or more of those stages, and that could really shake this race up. And at 331 down, he's looked like crap to be honest with you, but he he could still come back and do this. He in 2016, yes, he was four years younger, but he looked equally bad, and he was like four and a half minutes down in fourth place, and he won uh, in a really similar race that was really backloaded. Uh, the final TT is not great for him. I mean, he would have to have 30, 45 seconds to hold off Kelderman. So yeah, that that's gonna factor into there, but. Uh, yeah, just up top, I wouldn't write out. I wouldn't write off Almeida. I think he's got something left. Uh, so let's go over to the tour. Fl- oh, also by the way, at the Vuelta, the uh, BetMGM doesn't have their zero odds up, but I believe I took a screenshot of the last ones. Yeah. So at last check, Kelderman was at negative one sixty-seven. Almeida's plus two seventy-five, which is pretty good. Teo Gegenhart plus six hundred. Uh, not bad. Nibali's plus 800. That's not bad. Uh, Rafa Micah plus 1600. He's not going to win, but that's these are intriguing odds. Pozavivo, Fulsang, McNulty, Conrad, Persteiner. No, none of them are going to win it. Uh, if you could get odds on... It's funny that Bill Bell's not on there. I, I would feel... Or Henley. I mean, Jai Henley is... Kind of, I, I didn't believe in him coming into this. I think coming into the Giro, if I can look back and identify a mistake I made, is I was t- I emphasized riders who had like quote unquote done it before, but I actually went back. The last six Grand Tours have been won by riders who have never won a Grand Tour before. I think, yeah. So, and then this Giro is almost certainly going to be the seventh consecutive Grand Tour where that's happened. So uh, that could have poked a big hole in my theory right up top that there is a trend where kind of the old guard's being shuffled out and the new guard is coming in. And we saw that on stage uh, on stage 15 where the top four riders were on their 20s who have no, none of them have significant, Kelderman's gotten fourth in Grand Tour, but none of them have Tour de France podiums, or sorry, Grand Tour podiums. And everyone chasing was in their 30s. Uh, early to mid to late 30s, and they have uh, like a really impressive pass result sheet. But I mean, we've seen this multiple times. We saw this a couple times at the tour, where it's just like the old guys are off the pace of the new guys. We've seen this all throughout the year this year. So, yeah, I think it was a mistake to to just say, oh, well, Jai Henley's never done anything, so why is he going to win this race? Jai Henley could win this year at Italia. Um, it's crazy to think about, but he could definitely do it. Teo Gegenhart could maybe win this year to tell you. You know, Wilco Kelderman will probably win this year to tell you. I mean, I didn't think either of those three riders would do anything at this race before it started. So it just shows you that uh, you should always check check your intuition against actual stats before, before you lean too hard into them. Uh, yeah, and so at the Vuelta, Roglic is now a negative. Uh, minus 223, 223. So he's a huge favorite, huge favorite. Carapaz plus 450. Carapaz actually, I think he was 
Yesterday, when I wrote the newsletter, he was plus 700. I mean, those were great odds. I don't know why he was that low. To me, he was always the second favorite behind Roglic. Dumoulin's all the way down to plus 2,500. That's also intriguing to me. I mean, Dumoulin is better than he showed today. And, you know, if he can recover, there is a 34-kilometer time trial. You know, he can win this race. It's not, it's not inconceivable. Everyone else, I think, is noise. You just focus on Roglic, Carapaz, Dumoulin. The Vuelta will be won by one of those three riders. Probably Roglic, especially with the 18-stage uh, race now. Uh, yeah, so Flanders was this past weekend. It's my favorite race of the year. I, I've Some people love this condensed schedule. I don't like it. I feel like it cheapens every race. Like I really like to like set out the table and like dig into a Giro d'Italia. And I just like to obsess about the Giro while it's happening. It's really jarring to me to have these spring classics. And the same thing with the spring classics. I love them in the spring. You know, it's, I can just focus on them. And it's like, oh, the tour is, is down the road. I don't have to think about that right now. Or the Giro or the Vuelta. It's, it, honestly, it kind of, all these races are diluted when they're running up against each other. It just, it pulls my attention too many places. So that, I'm just going to say that up top because it might have uh, hurt my enthusiasm for the Tour of Flanders, which is my favorite race of the year. I was much less excited about this year. It's still, even with that blunted, blunted excitement, it's still undeniably fun to watch. It is, you have to be on your toes at all times to win this race. There's splits happening all the time. You can't miss any of them. F- small four or five second gaps could be the race when you move. It's so different from a Grand Tour where it's like, yeah, okay, you got a five minute gap. Well, that's going to get pulled back by the finish. It's not like that at all. So, so exciting. Um, Matthew Vanderpoel and Wout Van Aert are just the two best classic riders in the world now. And it's not even close, which is crazy because in 2019 they were good, but I didn't think serious contenders at any of these monuments. <laughs> now 2020 rolls around. Van Aert's 1-1 already at Milan San Remo. One Strada Bianchi and probably should have won this race. I mean, he lost it in a bike throw to Matthew Vanderpoel. I mean, it's crazy to me just how good they've gotten so fast. Where uh, Alaphilippe, Julian Alaphilippe actually made the race. Another wild thing: this is his first. It was his first time racing Flanders, which no one ever does well. Their first time racing Flanders, and he just kind of jumped in, and he made the race. I mean, he attacked over the Koppenberg, got pulled back, attacked again off of, on a like a a downhill, cobbled downhill, and broke the race again. Uh, Vanderpool went with them. They went into the Tienberg together. And then Woot Van Aert smartly realized, like, well, that's the race. I need to get up there. And I, I must think that, like, Oliver Nason, who looked strong, just could, he must not have been able to do it because anyone who wanted to win that race needed to be bridging with him because they got, they extended their lead on the Tienberg and it was over. I mean, they were not getting pulled back after that. Uh, and then Julian, this is like with 35K to go, Julian Alaphilippe rides into a motorcycle. Uh, Woot Van Aert was was drafting off of it, and you know that gets tricky. It's you can it's illegal, but you can kind of get away with it. But the motorcycle pulled over to stop this from happening. He whips away. Matthew Vanderpool's like, "Oh wow, uh, we, I'm I'm going to hit this motorcycle. I'm going to steer away too." And then Al Philippe just wasn't paying attention in third place and ran right into it. To me, that kind of hurt. It hurt my enjoyment of the race quite a bit because after that, Vanderpool and 
Van Art were so strong. They were never going to get caught. I mean, they actually extended the normally with the breakaway. If a third strong rider crashes out, their breakaway is probably over. They actually extended their lead quite a bit. I think they they almost doubled it after he crashed, uh, which is really incredible. And but they were so good. They were just flying over the, the old Quermont and the Paderberg, which are the two hardest climbs in all of cycling, even though they're short. Uh, these climbs are so hard. Like Alaphilippe averaged 560 watts over the Koppenberg, and he's small. So bigger guys were probably doing 700, 750 watts. And you have to do it for, these are probably like, a lot of these are like one to three minute climbs, which doesn't sound too hard, but you're, you're putting out major, major watts. And then you have to drill the descent. Uh, the flats in between the climbs aren't easy. And then you're doing it again, like five, 10 minutes later. And you do it again and again and again and again. It's just relentless. And so you hit these last two climbs, the Quermont and the Paderberg. There's a small, like, three-kilometer flat in between them. But that's, that's also difficult, and you're not resting on that. But these guys just, I mean, these, these climbs are tough. Like, good riders crack. Peter Sagan, when he was young and coming up, just got cracked on the Paderberg by, by Fabian Cancellar. Like, it looked like someone just went out and hit him with a sledgehammer. Like, it, it physically looks painful. And these are the strongest riders in the world. But these two guys just popped right over them. I've never seen anything like it. I do think modern gearing has helped a lot. And when I say modern, like, I really mean modern. Like, the gearing in the last four years has gotten so much better. Which is funny to think about. Like, they knew 10 years ago they could just put bigger gears on bikes and they'd be easier to ride. But they couldn't really convince teams and riders that it, it was worth it, but that, so that has made it easier. But I mean, even back in the Peloton, if you watch, if you watch uh, Van Art and Vanderpool go up the Paderberg and then you watch the Peloton, which is full of world-class riders, it looks, it looked like two different class of athletes. Like the Peloton wasn't even close to being able to match their speed. And those guys are so strong that they didn't even try to, try to attack each other. But I think if Alaphilippe was there, you know, he, he, would, he made the race. He was the strongest on the Koppenberg. I think he, he, maybe he wouldn't have been able to drop them, but he at least could have made it interesting. Because if he attacks, there's a false flat after the Quermont, he could have attacked on that. And Van Aert and Vanderpool, maybe they don't hate each other, but they have a pretty intense rivalry dating all the way back to their junior years. They traded off Cyclocross World, Champion, World Championships. And they wouldn't have, I don't think they would have helped each other pull back Al Philippe. So that would have made the race a lot more interesting. I think that, that was kind of the ingredient that was missing. Because to me, the final 20K in Flanders, it's the most exciting final, it's the most fi- exciting 20 kilometers of the year. And it was a little boring this year. And they, we all knew they weren't going to attack each other. We all knew they weren't going to get caught. So there was no suspense, really. It was just who's going to win this sprint. And, and they knew that too, that we can't drop each other. We're both really strong sprinters. Let's sprint it out. Uh, Vanderpool, he's not the most tactically astute rider. He's actually, I think, quite bad at tactics. Just kind of like rolled into the final K in front, which you should never do. But he was clearly confident in his sprint for good reason. He, you know, he just kept looking back, kept looking back. The pel- the, on TV, it looked like they were going to get caught. Like the Peloton's just closing in on them. They, they knew that they weren't going to get caught though. The, the camera foreshortens the, the distance 
And even they probably knew they could let it get within three seconds and they'd be okay. But he, you know, and it looks like Vanderpool actually gets almost like sick of waiting, waiting for Van Art to attack him and just sprints from 200k out. And it took forever. It was like a 15 second sprint. You know, probably at 13, 1400 watts. And Van Art almost comes around him, but loses in the, uh, the bike with the bike throw. Uh, it, I mean, really, I mean, it's incredible to see two of the best riders in the world duking it out one-on-one like that. That's great. We, we only got to see that a few times. I'd say this compares to uh, Boonin and Cancellara, Tom Boonin and Fabian Cancellara. And the 2010 Tour of Flanders, uh, Cancellara and Boonin were away. But then Cancellara just popped Boonin on the uh, Mur de Grammont, which actually is not in the race anymore, which is really sad. Uh, and then, but then he won by over a minute. I mean, we rarely saw them both. And Boonin wasn't in peak form that year. If you remember, those were he was like always getting uh, popped for cocaine. He would test positive for cocaine and in, in competition drug testing. So I don't think he was fully focused. And then a few years later, Boonin had a resurgence. He was like really focused and focused. And he was doing something different. But uh, Cancellara was struggling with some illness and some injuries. They were never really at their peak together. It's funny because you remember your mind plays tricks on you when you're like, oh, from 2005 to 2014, it was just Cancellara booning every year. But if you go back and look at these classics, there's a lot of other riders winning, partly because of Boonin and Cancellara locking the race up and riders like Nick Noyens, uh, Sten de Volder, yeah, some random guy won Roubaix. But yeah, there's actually not that many years where Boone and Cancellara were going one-on-one. So it's it's special to see that. It's exciting to think we could get this for years to come. But just my opinion, I know this is going to be unpopular, thought it was a little bit of a, not a letdown, because it, it was literally what we expected. But when I got what we wanted, it's just a little disappointing. Just like, ah, could have been more, that could have been more exciting. I, I, it's insane, obviously, to complain that, oh, these two guys are so good. It's boring, but ah, we needed Alaphilippe in there. I'll just say that. We needed another ingredient in that, in that beautiful cake that we got. Uh, also, other news, I think slightly significant news is Fernando Gaviria, who had looked off his best uh, all zero. I was wondering if it was COVID-related. Like, he had a pretty bit bad case of COVID in March or April. Uh, he was like in the m- hospital for a month. I thought maybe that took something out of him. Well, we found out today he had COVID. Uh, he had, had it again, which is kind of scary. That's like bad implications for society and really bad for him and his UAE team. I mean, how, how did he get it? Um, I've, I have a, a, a contact inside the UAE team level, so maybe I could get some information on that. But he... Uh, yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that's going to affect the rest of his team. It's hard to think Gaviria had it and no one else on his team has it. Uh Wilco Kelderman, I thought his biggest obstacle to winning this was the fact that his uh teammate Michael Matthews had to leave the race because of a COVID positive, but he tested negative twice when he got home. So that possibly was a false positive and Kelderman's in the clear. And the fact that no one on Sunweb no one else has, has test positive tells me that's possibly true. Uh, so, yeah, well, uh, that, that's it for now. I know that's, ins- that's it. Just uh, three huge races. Uh, 
and more to come. Uh, tomorrow we have Summit Finish at the Giro. Going to be very exciting. Even though I'm, t- I'm telling you now that the, cl- the final climb tomorrow, it's not, I know it's, like, it's iconic. And we all remember Pantani just shredding people on it. But Pantani was so strong. He would, he would like average seven watts per kilo his climb. So he could blow races up on five or six percent. But it's not that steep. I mean, I think Almeida is going to hang in there tomorrow. I think the key stage is going to be 18. And, and guys are going to be scared of 18. That's a scary stage. They do the Stelvio, which is 25 kilometers long. It's crazy. At like 8%. And then as soon as they descend off that, there's a final climb that's 10K long at 7%. So that's on Friday. Wait, no. Thursday. Guys are going to be really afraid of that. So tomorrow might be a bit of a dead fish. So, but should be interesting to watch. And then the Giro or the Vuelta, it's crazy. The first, uh, we had a mountain stage today, summit finish, mountain stage tomorrow. It's like a hard climb with a descent finish. Stage three is a summit finish. Stage four is like a tough, not sprint, but tough day. And then stage five is another mountain stage. Stage six is the Tourmalet. <laughs> this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. So out of the first six stages, like four are legit mountain stages with a Tourmalet summit finish inside the first week. I- I've never seen anything like this. It's actually pretty commendable, the Vuelta. Uh, a lot of Grand Tours are afraid of putting first weeks this hard in because you could have the GC settled by the end of the first week and that would kill the suspense. They clearly do not care. They're kind of the experiment. All like the steep climbs come from the Vuelta. Like they started doing it first. They actually, I should back up. They used to be the worst Grand Tour. So boring. They'd like race on highways. I think they did a, they did a whole race without mountains once. And like a sprinter won the overall. And they used to race like in the south of, south of Spain on these highways. It was just like, that was my first image of the Vuelta. Just like Tom Boonen on a highway clearly on vacation just like end of the year i'm on a paid vacation to spain this is awesome I, like guys would go out to the bars come back at six in the morning take a nap and then start the stage but in the last couple of years it's it's they just started putting they realized they had to change something they picked small roads they, they concentrate the race in the north where you get a lot of these really really tough climbs and it's paid off i mean you've seen that bleed over into the tour into the giro and they, they've pushed the envelope and it's caused the other Grand Tours to innovate as well and change. And we owe a lot to the Vuelta because of that. It's because of them, we get a lot more exciting racing at other Grand Tours. But this is wild. I've never seen anything like this. They're really swinging for the fences here. And, you know, with the weather, who knows? You know, they're, they're going up mountains at the, in November, you know, in the last week. So they might not get those. And this is a good hedge to, you know, it, I guess it could be storming on the Tourmalet on, I believe that's on Sunday. So that's the final day of the Giro. The final TT is the Tourmalet day at the Volta and was supposed to be Paris-Roubaix. I'm actually glad there's no Paris. That would have been too much. That would have been way too much. But, uh, yeah, so that, that should be really, and the, I mean, it's like, this, it's like the tour, but exciting. It's, it's going to be great. I'm very excited for this Vuelta, but I'm also still uh, 
I'm I'm still uh, I'm still in love with this Giro. It's a funky Giro. It's it's one of the weirdest Grand Tours I've ever seen. I've never. It's like a, a an amoeba, a blob. There's no form, no shape to it. Uh, who's gonna win? Who knows? <laughs> Who are these people? I don't know. But uh, yeah, so I I think it's gonna be uh, it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. It's just kind of a funky. It's a real funky race. It's kind of like. It's like the it's like the Greenwich Village and when Bob Dylan was down there, just like you know, it's at the cutting edge. And no one knows these people. Who who is this guy, Bob Dylan? I don't know. He's playing in a coffee shop. Let's check him out. They, this is the hipsters grand tour for sure. Uh but but then when this is done, then we have the Volta just to kind of like carry us through to November. And then we're close to next season. But who knows if next season will even happen as we think it will. But Let's keep our keep our heads up, keep our hopes up, and enjoy the racing to come. And uh, I'd say the newsletter is more important now than ever. So ch- check out beyondthepeloton.substack.com because no one in their right mind could possibly watch all these races. So let me watch them for you and tell you what happens. Uh, all right, well, have a great day, and we'll check back next week.